All right, let's, uh, let's study our Bibles together. If you would, turn your Bible, turn in your Bible to the book of Hosea, chapter number one. Hosea is the focus of our study this evening. It uh, just happens to have landed between a Sunday morning where we we're addressing the teachings of Jesus with regards to adultery and the Sunday morning when we we're addressing the teachings of Jesus with regards to divorce. There are many of the prophets of the Old Testament whose lives are quite impressive. There are those prophets whose lives we don't know a great deal about. But then there are those prophets we have a little further insight into that impress us, that serve as an example of, of God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of God's prophet to the preaching of God's word. Uh, Jeremiah comes to mind. Jeremiah in his faithfulness, known as the weeping prophet for 40 years, suffered with all of the hardships and challenges of preaching to a stiff-necked and stubborn people, thrown into a ditch, accused, condemned, castigated, mistreated, and yet faithful in the work to which God had called him. There is a great deal of uh, background that we don't know about the prophet Isaiah, but Everything that we observe of his life in the book of Isaiah would attest to his faithfulness over time. And it is believed that Isaiah was shoved into a hollowed log and sawn in two for his trouble at ministering to the people of Israel. Other prophets suffered with great hardship and tragedy and yet remained steadfast and faithful in all their work. But there is no other prof uh, prophet in my mind whose life serves as such a powerful example, not only to faithfulness to God, but to God's faithfulness to us as the man named Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Most of the prophets are prophesying to the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. But Hosea prophesies like Amos to the north. If you remember the history of the Old Testament, it was those ten northern tribes of Israel that com comprised the nation of Israel, and it was the nation of Israel that was most often the stubborn, bullheaded, stiff-necked people that uh, God often brought judgment against. Eventually, it was both Israel and Judah. There were seasons in the history of Judah in the south where things were good, but there was never a season in the history of the north when things were good. They did not have access to the city of Jerusalem. They did not have a king in the line of King David. They were destined for failure from the very beginning. It was to those people that Hosea the prophet prophesied. His name means the Lord saves. It's in the same family as Isaiah. The impressive thing about Hosea's life and leadership is he, it was more than just the ministry of the word. Not only does his word bring a charge from God against the people of God for their unfaithfulness, but his life, the example that his life provides, again serves as an incredibly powerful illustration of the great love that God has for us. In some of these book overviews, you've seen in your outline key passages in some of these overviews, you see in your outline key themes. When you see the language of key themes, what I'm suggesting to you there is that these are all of the themes. 
when you see the language of key passages, what I'm suggesting to you there is that there's far more to the book. But these are some highlights that will help you to capture the essence of what's being communicated in that book. We're looking tonight in Hosea at key themes. The first three chapters, really chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 3 and verse number 5, focus on Hosea's family, again, as an illustration of the faithfulness of God toward his people. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now, just a brief unpacking of what has been stated there in this sort of historical location of Hosea's ministry. In essence, what we find is that this is a season of great prosperity in the nation of Israel. You might remember that back weeks ago as we looked at the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah's ministry begins during a season of great prosperity. What, what resonates with us, given the historical context in which both Jeremiah began in and Hosea prophesied in, was the reality that it's often difficult for us to hear the voice of God when our ears have been stuffed with comfort and affluence. We suffer from the same fate in our own day. Our hearts do not readily discern the work of the Spirit when all is well. Our eyes do not readily see the handiwork of God. Our ears do not readily hear the word of God when all is well. It's in a season of crisis that we tend to be better attuned to what God is doing in our life. And such was the case for the people in Hosea's day. In a, in a day of great prosperity under the leadership of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, things were going really, really well. Financially, economically, things were going really, really well. Spiritually speaking, things really, really stunk, which is a further reminder to us that you cannot equate economic prosperity, personal financial prosperity, with spiritual favor. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean that you're godly. Just because a nation prospers doesn't mean that it's a nation collectively committed to righteousness. This is a great deception that although we would reject on its face, we subtly embrace, assuming that those who are well-off, affluent, comfortable, must be enjoying the favor of God, while those who are impoverished or struggling to get by must have somehow gone astray and have experienced this poverty as a result of the removal of God's hand. Nothing could be further from the truth. In verse 2, the Bible says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. The King James would say, God said, Go marry a harlot and bear children of harlotry. It seems apparent to me, although there's some discussion among Hosea scholars as to whether the children that are described as being conceived and born in the remainder of chapter 1 were actually the legitimate children of Hosea or the illegitimate children, the product of Gomer's um, unfaithfulness to Hosea. Here Hosea is commanded that he is to go and to marry a woman of promiscuity. We find that to be filled out further in the chapters that follow. Not only was she a woman of promiscuity, she was a woman of prostitution. So in verse 3, the Bible says, He went and married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him 
Jezreel. For in a little while I'll bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel is a reference to the acts of atrocity that Jehu committed against the house of Ahab. Ahab was a former king of Israel, the wickedest of all the kings of Israel. And to bring judgment against the house of Ahab, God raised up Jehu, who would be king over Israel for a season, and ordered that Jehu would go and cut down the family of Ahab. Now the problem with that was that Jehu was especially bloodthirsty in his cutting down of the house of Ahab, a reminder to us that you can do the right thing in the wrong way and it will not please the Lord. And that's exactly what Jehu did. The reference here to Jezreel is a reference to bloodshed, to great um, acts of atrocity, to gruesome death, to the letting of blood. Name this child Jezreel as a reminder of the blood that was shed in times past because the letting of blood is coming once again for the nation of Israel, giving her rebellion against me. In verse 6, the Bible says she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her no compassion. That name has been translated for most of you in your translation. Some of you may be working with a different translation that just reads lo ruhamah, which is just the Hebrew word for no compassion. So if you're reading from a translation that says no compassion, your translators have done you a great favor there. Name this child, this female child, no compassion, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. So this second child attests to the fact that compassion, that patience, that long-suffering has run its course, and there will be no more for the nation of Israel. There remains compassion for the southern kingdom of Judah, but there will be no more compassion for the nation of Israel. In verse 8, the Bible says, After Gomer had weaned no compassion, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him not my people. Again, some of your translations may just say, lo ami, a translation from Hebrew of not my people. Name this child not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or counted in the place where they were told, uh, and in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They'll appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. Call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. So God says, Hosea, go marry Gomer, a woman of prostitution. And you're going to name the three children that you bear, these symbolic names, your life, your family, your everyday is going to be a public illustration of the disjointed relationship now that exists between God and the people of Israel. The reference in chapter 2 and verse 1 to calling your brothers my people 
and your sister's compassion is a reference to Judah in the south. Call the men of Judah compassion, or, or call the men of Judah my people, and call the women of Judah compassion. They're going to enjoy sonship. They're going to enjoy my patience, my compassion. But for the ten northern tribes of Israel, compassion has run out. And your name is now not my people. And the atrocities of Jezreel will be visited on the nation of Israel. Judgment is coming against them. For her spiritual harlotries against me. Gomer would serve as the living illustration of their unfaithfulness to the Father. If you'll read carefully and considerately through chapters 1 through 3, you'll find compassion yourself for Hosea and all that he experiences. While Hosea experiences uh, the ridicule and the judgment of his friends and neighbors, as well as the heartache and the heartbreak of his wife's infidelities, he remains faithful to God. Chapter 2 describes something of the mentality behind the people of Israel and their unfaithfulness to God. In verse 5 of chapter 2, the Bible says, Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I'll go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. What is so unfortunate about the expression is that it's clear that Gomer goes after what she already has in her husband, Hosea. And what's so sad about the experience of the people of Israel is that they clearly go after what they already have in the covenant relationship that exists between themselves and God. And so in verse 6, the Bible says, Therefore, this is what I'll do. I'll block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she can't find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. She will think, I'll go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me, for then it was better for me than now. And God says, I'm not going to make her adultery easy for her. I'm not going to accommodate her infidelity. I'm going to put thorns around her. I'm going to make it hard. In light of Sunday's message on the sin of adultery and, and the great seismic consequences of that sin, can I just offer a word of counsel and encouragement to those of you who may be dealing with family members or even adult children who are involved in adultery or unfaithfulness in some way? Be careful that in exercising friendship toward them and demonstrating your great care for them, that you don't accommodate their unfaithfulness, that you don't do things that make it easy for them to persist in their unfaithfulness. This is pretty commonplace even among Christian folks. You, you, you take a sweet older couple in the church, they have a 30-something son who's unfaithful to his wife and wants to leave, and they provide a place for him to land. And then mom begins to cook, right? That's what mom does. And dad begins to do all of the things or continues to do all of the things that dad does. And it becomes this unreal, unrealistic fantasy experience of adulthood living in mom's, mom and dad's house where every meal is wonderful, right? And like men don't like to admit this, but moms always cook better than wives. Wives don't hold that against me. I think that's just kind of written in the constitution of mankind. And so there he is acting like a low-down, dirty dog, involved in adultery, and living like a king. 
Those are the kinds of things that you have to guard against. And it's just mom being mom, loving a son, and it's just dad being dad, loving a dad. But you may be inadvertently accommodating that person's sin, encouraging them in that direction. Through the years, I've known some godly men and women, some godly mothers and fathers who raised some of the biggest heathens I've ever known. And when you begin to look at how they interact with one another and you, and you begin to reflect on their history together as a family, what seems clear is that mom and dad, one or the other or both, along the way enabled, inadvertently, they never intended for it to come to this, but they enabled the kind of behavior that has ultimately damned the soul of that child. Sometimes the way to love them best is to do precisely what God describes in this passage and to build some thorns of discomfort around their misbehavior and allow them to bear with the consequences of the dreadful decisions that they're making in their life. That's precisely what God is describing in our passage. In verse 9, the Bible says, Therefore I'll take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I'll take away my wool and linen which were to cover her nakedness. In other words, I'm going to begin to withdraw some of the benefits of this relationship. If she doesn't want this relationship, the benefits of this relationship are going to begin to go away. God says, I'm going to remove grain in its time. I'm going to pull back new wine in its season. I'm going to withdraw wool and linen that were to cover her nakedness and provide for warmth in the winter year, in the winter of the year. Verse 14, the Bible says, therefore, I'm going to persuade her Lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I'll give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt in that day. This is the Lord's declaration. You will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. Do you see what God is describing here? God says, even in her unfaithfulness, I'm going to set out to go and to win her back. I'm going to do whatever it takes to woo her and to charm her. And although she may give her allegiance to Baal today, there's going to come a time in the near future when my charm is so profoundly strong that she will once more call me her husband. Just on a practical level, one of the things that you often see in counseling and encouraging couples through seasons of unfaithfulness and infidelity is that in bitterness and anger at what has happened, the offended party really refuses to do anything to advance the ball of restoration and reconciliation. And they're right about their frustration. Their bitterness is well-placed. But until you're able to wrestle through some of those things and begin to work yourself, even as the offended party, to see reconciliation and to see restoration, you're not likely at all to be able to land in that place. The holy God of heaven, perfect in his faithfulness, altogether undeserving of our unfaithfulness, says, I'm going to go, even as I've been offended, I'm going to go the extra mile to win my people back, that she'll call me once more my husband. You see, a, 
a variety of examples of Israel's unfaithfulness and the great lengths to which God goes in the remainder of chapter 2 to win her back. I want us to move over to chapter 3 and sort of the conclusion of this episode in the book of Hosea. God says to Hosea here, well, let's just read. Verse 1. The Lord said to me, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. I don't know what the raisin cakes are about, just as an aside, they were attached to the worship of Baal and various other pagan deities. I hope the mystery of that little two-word phrase won't overshadow the profundity of what has been described in these verses. Read again. Go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes. Listen to verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. And I said to her, you must live with me many days. Don't be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. Thank God in heaven, I I don't know um, the full emotional gamut of what Hosea experienced at the unfaithfulness of his bride. Some of you will at least know in part but I've, I've seen broken wives and broken husbands sit across from me in my office dozens of times before and just break and weep at the heartache that they had experienced. Now, for most of fallen mankind, a great deal of the heartache and heartbreak that is experienced is related to the sense of rejection, not living up, there's a measure of pride that contributes to the brokenness of that kind of experience. That doesn't seem to be as much of the equation with Hosea as it is to most folks. He seems here to be driven only by his great love for Gomer. (laughs) You can imagine being in love with a woman named Gomer. But that's exactly where we find Hosea here in chapter 3. Now think about what he does. After her unfaithfulness, all that he'd experienced. If we assume that the children she bears are illegitimate, there's even more to the story, right? It seemed, I think that's the case. That's my position, by the way, that these are not the biological children of Hosea that are being born forth, bearing these symbolic names. She runs away and not only commits adultery, but she sells herself away in prostitution. And the Bible says that Hosea goes and he buys her back for 15 shekels of silver and a little barley. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. I think that even before marriage functions as a way to bring joy and satisfaction and fulfillment to mankind, Marriage is intended by God to serve as a living, breathing illustration of the love that Jesus has for his church. And this is the kind of love that Jesus has for his church. 
I, I think I mentioned this on Sunday mornings. Sometimes with three services, I mention one thing in one service and not in the other. And sometimes I mention one thing in one service and not in the other because I'm not entirely certain in one service if I mentioned that already in that service or if it was a service that came before. I'm not expecting this to get much better with age. But I, I hear people say often in jest, we say comically, if he or she ever did this, it would be over. I could never forgive that particular sin. And I always tell Brandy, if something like this ever happened, I'm just going to begin a prison ministry. I got a free ticket right straight to parchment. I'm killing everybody anywhere around. Everybody's dead. And I, I get the sentiment. I get that I could never get over, never forgive that kind of sin against me. I do. But that is not a model of the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. Jesus says, in spite of her unfaithfulness, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what you do, no matter how far you run, though you despise and reject out of acts of, de acts of defiance, words of defiance, no matter how far you go as my people, I'll find you in the wilderness and I'll woo you and charm you and condition the circumstances of your life to ready your heart to receive me again that you will say once more my husband God goes after his bride and he pays the price to take her back even when she does not deserve his faithfulness I'm convinced this is one of the most powerful illustrations of God's great grace toward us in all of the Bible so the first key theme in the book of Hosea is just his family's experience. I'll move much more quickly through the latter three here in your outline. In chapters 4 and 5, God essentially brings a lawsuit or criminal charges against the people of Israel. As Hosea prophesies to the people of Israel, he casts his word against them as, a, a, as an attorney. He, he speaks as a lawyer. Understand that there's a legal component. There, there's a legally binding civil component to the covenant relationship between God and the people of Israel. The covenant of the Old Testament was the constitution of the nation of Israel. And so as the people of Israel have violated the covenant, they have not only committed a sin against God on a spiritual level, they have violated the very constitution of their relationship with God of heaven. In verse 1 of chapter 4, the Bible says, Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. That's going to be repeated a few times here. God has a case against you. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant, one act of bloodshed follows another. It sounds eerily similar to the great part of Western civilization. God says in verse 3, For this reason the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky. Even the fish of the sea disappear. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you, priest. Verse 6, the Bible says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. 
In verse 8, the Bible says, they feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their transgression. He's he's speaking here of the priest, right? So there, there, there are two levels of accusation being levied against the people of Israel. There's one against the people, and there's one against the priest and the prophets. There's one against the laymen and one against the spiritual leadership in the nation of, of Israel. There, there is a special measure of divine impatience with the priest, with the prophet, with the preacher in our language of, of, of when it comes to unfaithfulness. Like you, you'll, all, you'll always find, I, I hope that I always deal gently and compassionately with people who fall into sin. But I just got to tell you, if I'm being judgment day honest, I've got about this much patience, this much compassion, and this much mercy for a man who gives himself to vocational ministry, to service as an elder in any capacity in the church, and who violates the standard of God in grievous ways. I'm not saying that preachers, elders, pastors are perfect. That's not what I'm suggesting. But the degree to which immorality and especially sexual immorality have become commonplace within American Christianity and its leadership is sickening to me. It's disgusting. The Bible says, Wish not that all would be masters or teachers of the word, for with the position comes a stricter judgment. The expectations, the obligations, and even the qualifications of God for service in these capacities could not be clearer. And yet we see across the land, preachers, pastors, so-called elders, prostituting the work of ministry for their own personal gain, gain, fleecing the people of their church financially, and in some cases, in the most sinister of ways, fleecing the membership of their churches sexually. I, I can't imagine that there would be anything more disgusting to God in heaven as he looks across the landscape of the church than that kind of perversity in the pulpit. God, it's the people, yes, but he is especially severe in his indictment of the priesthood and the prophets who have prostituted the office that God has assigned to them for their own personal gain. In verse 8, when the Bible says they feed on the sin of my people, they have an appetite for their transgression. Do you realize what he's describing there? He's, he's using the sacrificial system as an illustration of their appetite for sin. They're delighting in the sinfulness of the people under their charge. In the mentality of the people of Israel, we sin, so we bring a sacrifice. And the priesthood survives off a portion of the sacrifice, right? In certain instances, you would stick in a certain uh, instrument, and whatever was drawn forth, you would be permitted to keep that particular part of the sacrifice. In the case of certain burnt offerings, a portion of that offering would be kept back. The priests were literally delighting in the sinfulness of their people because they knew that the sinfulness of the people meant the fattening of their bellies. It oughtn't be this way. The deep burden, the heaviest of burdens for the leader that leads according to the Leadership of God's Spirit should be the sinfulness of His people. If there's anything that keeps the preacher awake at night, it is the idea of His people drifting into sin. It is to witness, to see the prevalence of certain sin among His people. That ought to be the first and the foremost of concerns. I I wonder sometimes even how my pastoring, my preaching specifically is regarded. I fear at times people will think that I'm just trying to pick on certain sins, but it's never that. 
I, I, I don't watch the news to determine what sin we're going to address emphatically in next week's message. I watch the lives of our people to try to make a good det- determination led by the Word of God and the Spirit of God as to what sins are uh, the, the most pressing within the context of our church. Like, you're going to hear me for the rest of my ministry here preach far more about the sexual sins of lust and adultery than you are about transgenderism. Like, I'm not looking around and seeing this being a major issue in our church. It doesn't mean that it's not bad. It just that means that for us, our concern is growth in Christ and personal righteousness and as a body being holy as God is holy. All of that is turned on its head in what is described in the book of Hosea. The interest of both priest and prophet was not to turn the people to God, but to literally turn the people away from God. Both are indicted strongly in chapters 4 and 5 for their unfaithfulness to God. Hosea describes them in verse 10 as having abandoned their devotion to the Lord. People and priest had simply walked away from faithfulness to God. In chapters 6 through 11, uh, Hosea transitions, the book turns in more of uh, a customary prophetic form. Like when you read certain prophets in the Old Testament, there's a certain style that you've come to expect, right? In chapter 6 through 11, uh, line up more with the style that's customary among the prophets. Within those chapters, chapters 6 through 11, Hosea further describes Israel, uh, Israel's unfaithfulness But what is coupled with that is this unfortunate experience whereby their unfaithfulness, they are destroying themselves. This is what Hosea seems to be pointing out over and over and over again. Even in Hosea's family in chapters 1 through 3, what seems apparent in Gomer's experience is that while she is running after what she believes she needs to have, she already has what she needs at home. She is turning away from the provision of a faithful husband in running after these things that can only leave her jaded and broken and frustrated. And the same is true of Israel. They are chasing after what they believe they need. They're chasing after what they believe they want, all the while running in the opposite direction of true provision in God. God desires to meet their need. And they're chasing after gods that cannot meet the need, gods that cannot save. God has provided for them cisterns of fresh water, and they continue to lap at broken cisterns over and over and over again. It's a series of examples we'll look at just quickly in chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 1, halfway down the verse, at the beginning of the second sentence in verse 1, the Bible says, For they practice fraud. A thief breaks in, a raiding party pillages outside, but they never consider that I remember all their evil. Now their sins are all around them. They're right in front of my face. It's as though they don't believe that God can see their sins. In verse 6 of the same chapter, halfway down the verse, the Bible says their anger smolders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings fall. And not one of them calls on me. Even in seasons of political turmoil, what's being described there is the upheaval that's happening within the kingship of Israel. With the fall of Ahab's family, the Amri dynasty, 
you have the Jehu or uh, uh, the Jehu dynasty that's raised up, and you have a series of kings that lead there. But they're constantly killing one another and in different families overtaking the throne. And even with all of the political and civil unrest that has come with the various coups that have happened in the leadership of Israel, no one has thought in that series of historical events to look to God. God stands ready to to meet their need to provide even during the season of unrest. And no one calls on God. In verse 8, the Bible says, Ephraim has allowed himself to get mixed up with the nations. Ephraim is unturned bread baked on a griddle. Foreigners consume his strength, but he does not notice. Even his hair is streaked with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against them, yet they don't return to Yahweh their God. And for all this, they do not seek him. One of the failures of the nation of Israel, and we're going to run out of time in just a second. One of, one of the great failures was the idea that, that if they would ally themselves with the Assyrians, they would be safe. Now, if you remember more than you're likely to remember from the last several weeks of study, it was the Assyrians that overthrew the northern kingdom. It was the Assyrians who were the sword in the hand of God that brought judgment against the northern kingdom. But we're not there yet historically, right? Hosea comes at a time much earlier than that. Assyria is only now on the rise. And the thought within the nation of Israel is, we will make buddies with those guys. They've invited us into an alliance, and then no one can touch us. That's a, that's a, that's a dangerous thing to do. When I was, as a boy, as a teenager, I always found my way into older crowds. I was always kind of the little brother that the older guys in the neighborhood liked to stoke to do things that shouldn't be done, but they always had my back, right? And so you learn to be very mouthy when you're 13 and 14 and your buds are 18 and 19. You can get by with most anything. The problem is one day your buddies ain't going to be there. And when somebody puts a, bunch of knot, puts a bunch of knots on your head, you, you learn better than that. And Israel is going to eventually experience what it's like when Assyria is not at their side. When this strange political bedfellow decides it's time to move on somewhere else, when they don't need Israel, they would deprive her of this alliance and ultimately overthrow and destroy her. There, there are further examples here of the self-destructive nature of disobedience. And what I'd simply say to you in terms of application here is that disobedience always has a, a self-destructive way in your life. You may think that your sin is making you happy. It may really be the thing that you want to do right now. But I'm telling you, your sin will find you out. And I don't just mean that it becomes public. It always does. I I mean that eventually those chickens come home to roost. Eventually, you're going to reap the whirlwind for the decisions that you are making. Eventually, your disobedience is going to bite you in a major, major way. And the joy that you believed it would bring you will be trumped by the disaster that it creates in your personal life. That was the experience of the people of Israel, and it's always our experience as well. In spite of her great faithfulness, in the conclusion of Hosea's prophecy, there is, as there always is, the promise of restoration. 
God invites her to come back, to rejoin him in sweet fellowship, to come back to him. No matter what they'd done, no matter how often they had turned astray, their spiritual infidelity, all of the horrible things that they'd done, collectively, the horrible things that they'd done, individually, the horrible things that they had done, God invites Israel to be restored once again to him. And he invites us, in spite of the things that we've done, the places that we've been, the things that we've said, the things that we've thought, the activities that we've participated in, the sins of our past, our present, and our future, God invites us into sweet fellowship with him. He is a good and faithful God. The price that he pays for his unfaithful bride is not a petty price. It's not an arbitrary amount. He pays through the shed blood of his son Jesus. That's the price for your redemption. Not 15 shekels of silver and a little barley, but the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. A payment sufficient to redeem the chief of sinners. Aren't you glad for the grace that he's shown us? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the beautiful example that a heartbreaking family and Hosea and Gomer and the children described in our passage serve for us tonight. God, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that when we're unfaithful, you are faithful. We thank you for an unending eternal covenant that exists between us and you. A covenant signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood of your son Jesus. We rest and rejoice in the truth and reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your only begotten son. We pray these things in his name.